have uh, probably seen it. It, it was, it would premiered in 1967, and I was just, I was a zygote back then. No, seriously, I was uh, about uh, 12, and I don't remember if I saw it when it first came out, but I saw it not long after that, and I, I can't remember my recollection, but I know at a certain point in my life, I watched it, and I realized, wow, this, this feels a lot like my world. But, and if you don't know what the movie was about, it was set in Manhattan, and uh, this this couple who, he was a publisher and his wife owned a, a, an art gallery. And they're very progressive, you know, open-minded people. And their daughter uh, comes home, I think, from college. And she had met an African-American widow who was a doctor. And he was, she was bringing him home, hence the title, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? <laughs> and... They saw themselves as these people who taught their children, you know, don't be, I mean, to be colorblind, to treat everybody equally. And they were wrestling with all these, you know, questions and things that, that were inside them and their friends and family. And, and it, was just an, it, it was just an interesting uh, slice of what was going on in the world then. It still is go going on now. And things have changed a lot since then. But what at the heart of it was this this practice that people, I think you can you can find this in every culture in every country, in the world throughout history, that birds of a feather flock together, that people tend to have have in their lives they have an inside group and they have an outside group, and the outside group has concentric circles and then. At the furthest end of the outside group are like the really troublemaking, notorious people that you don't want to have. It doesn't matter what race or, you know, whatever they are. They're way out there. Well, that, and, and people basically have that mindset because we've all recognized there's this old adage that bad company corrupts good morals. And so people all over the world, throughout history, at all times and all places, even when they've tried to be more hospitable, people still practice this. We observe this. And what I want to show you today, and we're going to just do a little review about the series we've been in, but what I want to show you is that Jesus takes that practice and he turns it on its head in, in a way that you'd expect Jesus to, to do things. That he is constantly challenging the status quo and saying it's not that there isn't some wisdom in the idea that, that bad company corrupts good morals, but there's a greater wisdom than that wisdom, okay? That's not evil. That's not, it's an idea that's actually in the Bible, but there are other ideas that challenge it in very important ways. So if you have a Bible with you, I want you to open it up to Mark chapter 2. If you want to Read along with me. It's just a short passage. It's only four verses, a very short little story. Mark chapter 2, verse 13 to 17. And if you uh, want to read along with me under the chair seat in front of you, there's paperback Bibles, and it's page 694. So here's, here's the review. We've been, uh, this is what we're about. Uh, we've been teaching through a series on identity. And identity is, is a big, big issue now. And the Bible has a lot to say about it. In fact, the whole essence of what the gospel is about is about the fact that salvation, at the heart of salvation, is this 
new identity that God gives us as a gift that has nothing to do with with how we've measured up or not measured up. And that that identity says that because of Jesus, when you believe in him, you become a beloved child of God that says something about you that trumps everything else that anybody says about you and that even you say about yourself. And it's a transforming experience. That's why we get this idea of being born again. And it's something that begins to change when you embrace it and you follow Christ. It begins to change the trajectory of your life. And you are enabled to live outside the set of expectations that get placed upon every human being that are destructive. And some of those expectations come from inside us. So, and we saw the gospel then tells us, so there's this story in the New Testament, a passage called the Great Commission, where Jesus says to his his followers right before he leaves them to return to the Father, and he says, as you go, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then teach them to obey everything I taught you, and I'll be with you to the end of the age. And so what he says there is, is, is he takes this idea of identity and he focuses it in several ways. So when we're baptized into the Father, we become part of a family. So to be a believer, you're part of the family of God. When we're baptized into Jesus, we become part of a, a group of people who are servants because Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for others. So we're a family of servants. But then when we're baptized, so that's the Father and the Son, we're baptized in the Spirit, we become sent people, we're sent as missionaries. So if you want to say, what's the church? At its most fundamental, it's the the children of God who are a, a family of servant missionaries. And then on top of that, we are disciples because that's the most the most common term for someone. If you're a follower of Jesus here, you're an apprentice of Jesus. And an apprentice is someone who's trying to follow someone else and, and, and master the life that they've learned. And a disciple is someone who's going from unbelief to obeying Jesus in every dimension of their life. And that's a journey to be sure. And their people, a disciple is someone who's embraced the call that Jesus gave all of his disciples. He said this. He said to the fishermen, for example, the fisherman that he, he saw by the Sea of Galilee, he said, follow me and then I'm going to make you fishers of people. So what he was saying was every follower of Jesus, every follower of his, every disciple is a disciple-making disciple. So then we saw last few weeks This whole disciple-making thing of sharing our faith and helping other people come into relationship with Christ, it's not something that that we have this life and we sort of tack something onto it. And our already busy life becomes insanely busy because we're supposed to be, you know, sharing our faith and doing all these other things. But the truth is we're supposed to be integrating that into the everyday rhythms of our life. And so there's what we're introducing as we're proceeding through this identity series is we're trying to show you six ways, six everyday rhythms in your life right now where you live, work, play, and learn, stuff that you do every day, every week, every month, every year that if you can 
live with intentionality, you can become a disciple-making disciple in those everyday rhythms of life. And so we saw the first one was surprise, celebrating that, that the kingdom of God is a party. And when we celebrate, we're in, being involved in the kingdom. That that's, that's, a, that's one of the biggest themes. That's maybe the biggest theme that represents the, the kingdom of God in the whole Bible from beginning to end is this idea of partying. And that Jesus is at parties constantly. And so the, the takeaway from that was the people in the vineyard should give the best parties. You're, you're, and, and, and I don't mean we're partying, all right? I know that that's coming to our state, but we're not doing that. And we're the best guests. And we looked at the text where Jesus turned water into wine because the party was blowing up because the wine ran out. And Jesus made the best wine that they'd ever had. And the, the, the host of the party said, wow, you saved it. Everybody usually saves the really, you know, like ripple till the end. Did they even make ripple anymore? When I was growing up, we drank ripple. Okay, it's not ripple. Boone's, oh, it was Boone's Farm. Do they still have Boone's Farm? Okay. Was it like 30 cents a bottle or something? I don't know. Anyway, uh, you're going, what are you, John, you have way too much knowledge of alcohol. What are we, what's going on? Jesus saved, you know, the stuff that you have to buy at auctions and you have to hold a, a card up to bid on it. He saved that for this point in the party where nobody else did that. He saved the best till then. And so we're supposed to be the best guests at parties too. We're supposed to be people that make the party better when we go there. Second, Rick talked about blessing last week. This week we're going to talk about eating. This is a rhythm of life that we can intentionally leverage to become people that, that share faith and that make disciples in every part of life. And so read with me this passage. Now, the problem is we run into this good company, bad moral thing that that's kind of, we're hardwired to. And we, wanted, we want to see what Jesus did with that. So starting at verse 13, once again... Jesus went out beside the lake, and a large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth, who was also called Matthew, okay, who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. He says, follow me. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus, so some time went by, and Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, maybe that very night, but shortly afterwards. And it says, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. So, so there's a big party. Matthew has begun to follow Jesus. And he has a lot of friends that were part of his community. Because I'll, I'll tell you in a second why there's these inside-outside uh, people being referenced here. They're at this party, and Jesus' disciples come with Jesus, because this is what disciples do. They follow their instructor everywhere so they can learn, because faith is not about knowledge as an end in itself. It's about a way of life, and knowledge is part of that, but in the church today, and maybe you've been caught in this, you think it's okay if you believe the right things. And I just had a guy make this brilliant observation to me the other day. See, uh, a young guy that, that he, you know, he, was, I don't know where he is in his faith, but he said, 
I was talking to a guy recently, and he showed me Matthew 25. And he said, you know, the judgment is like about what we do or what we didn't do. And I went, that's interesting that that guy, he was talking about another person. That guy kicked that out because Jesus didn't say, hey, if you like me, I want you to start believing these things about me. He didn't say that. He said, follow me, right? Follow me. So they followed him into the party. They followed him to this meal. And it says, when the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, and the word Pharisee means holy one or separated one. When the Pharisees saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, eyebrows went up. Whoa, you know, there's a lot of, what's going on? You know, we thought this guy was like really had it together. What is he doing here? They said, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? They're holding their nose as they're saying it, right? They're looking at these people and they're looking down their nose, so to speak. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners, which was a Matthew and Luke say a little differently. They basically say Jesus was addressing these self-righteous Pharisees and saying, go away and learn what it means when I say I desire obedience or mercy and not sacrifice. So he's challenging them to, to rethink their perspective. But Jesus said, I'm coming for people who know they have some stuff out of whack in their life and it ain't working out. And I'm going to meet them at meals. So when you eat with tax collectors and sinners, it's scandalous. I'll give you some quick reasons why. These tax collectors in particular, they represented the Roman Empire, which everybody hated. Every Jew hated. Secondly, they collected exorbitant taxes. They weren't just like run-of-the-mill, pay a little bit and you're okay. These were significant taxes. Historians say this was like taxation that was uh, cruel. And these men collected those taxes. And on top of those exorbitant taxes, they would often overcharge the people so they could become rich because they did get a living off of it. But if you overcharged people enough, you could get rich. And they had the power of the government so they could do that. So they were hated. Uh, Third or fourth, when people couldn't pay the taxes, they abused the people who couldn't pay the taxes. There's tragic stories. You can go back and read records that historians uh, found that showed these tax collectors doing horrible things to people who couldn't pay the taxes. Uh, It made the IRS just seem like really friendly people, if you've ever been visited by the IRS. Uh, It was also scandalous because it implied that you approved of these people. So the Jewish people looked at those tax collectors and sinners, and they they had this, this idea that if you ate with them, you approved of their lifestyle, which you shouldn't if you were a, a pious person. Third, it left space, like we talked about, for being corrupted. Bad company does corrupt good morals. And last of all, it implied when you, when you ate with people in their culture, and really most any culture, when you eat with people regularly, it's implying that you want to start a relationship with them or you want to deepen a relationship. Because... This is the observation that people have made historically. The people we're most influenced by are the people we 
eat with the most. It's true. And in one sense, that's one of the reasons why our society is slowly unraveling. Because there's so little meaningful table fellowship, particularly in families, than there, there used to be. And so the influence centers start shifting and people begin to be influenced by people that you know, aren't the best influences. So why would Jesus, if this is all true, why would he get into a scrap like that and, and take so much criticism to eat with those people? Well, here's the take-home point. Eating with others is a way of inviting people to experience the kingdom of God. Eating with, especially outsiders, is a way of inviting people as you eat with them to experience the kingdom. And so, the, you know, briefly, the kingdom of God is, it's not a place. It is wherever God's rule is breaking into the world through the name of Jesus. So, wherever injustice is being fought in the name of Jesus and overcome, the kingdom of God's breaking in there. Wherever the widows and the orphans and the poor and immigrants and outsiders are being loved and cared for, the kingdom of God's breaking in. Wherever people are being healed in the name of Jesus, the kingdom of God's breaking in. The, Jesus, his whole life was this constant repetition of this is what the kingdom of God looks like and then and he'd teach and then he would show it in concrete ways. He was, he was the embodiment of it and he was the way that the kingdom broke in. When you related to Jesus, the kingdom would break into your lives. And so there's three ways, three ways the kingdom breaks in amongst many when we eat with people. When you eat with outsiders regularly, they experience, and you can look on your outline, you can write this in. Some of you are going to come up to me afterwards, so write this in now. They experience, oh, we've got to pass these outlines out. Oh, that would help. Here they come. One, two, three, four. You could track along with me then. The welcome of the kingdom of God, when you eat with people, now just track me. This is real simple. You say to people, you matter. All day long, we're bombarded by circumstances that say, you don't matter. Slights, rejections, mistreatment. When someone says, come and eat with me. Come over to my house. I'm making dinner tonight. Come and eat with me. Well, what should I bring? Just bring your appetite. You matter. You matter. It's, it is such an important and lacking statement to make in the world today. The community of the kingdom of God is the second thing that people experience when they eat with us. They experience community because we all hunger to belong, right? You've all heard me say the six core longings, that, that belonging is, is a fundamental need in our life, right? We need to belong. We've got to have a tribe. We've got to have a family. And this is a taste of it. And when we eat with others, we turn outsiders into family. When you eat with other people, you turn outsiders into family. And the cool thing is, nobody can have too much family. Now, sometimes family don't act like family. But when you're in a pinch, you want as much family as you can, as you can have. Religion says, now listen, this is an important thing. Here's what religion says. It says, behave, then believe, 
and then you can belong. It says behave, then believe what we believe, then you can belong with us. What Jesus does here is he just like takes a huge hammer and just smashes that and says, no, this is how it works. You belong, and then you can believe, and then you become. You become the best version of yourself you can be because you believe in me. But you get to belong first. You get to be part of the community and the family before you deserve it, before you're even acting the way we act. And that's a life changer. We've tried to be like that as a church for 30 plus years. And, we, and I hope we'll be like that for 30 more years. But that is not typically what people encounter when they hear the gospel. They think you've got to believe I mean, you got to behave, and then you got to believe, and then maybe you can belong. That's not the way it works. And building community in our time is one of the most crucial needs for the common good of our society. Community is just falling apart everywhere. And so eating together is a way of taking people who are outsiders and making them family. And it begins to strengthen the bonds of our society in, in really important ways right now. And the last, when you invite people to eat with you, they experience the grace of the community. The grace of the community. And grace is something that comes. It's, it's undeserved favor from God. And meals remind us, this is, this is the leveling power of meals. They make a theological statement. Everybody needs. Everybody is, is what we would say philosophically, contingent. You're not independent. You need, you, you need others. You need many things. And when everybody sits at the same table and eats, it's this leveling power. That's where Jesus comes. And so meals reveal the grace of God that's available through the kingdom. And the Passover meal in the Jewish community was the meal in their history that became sort of what defined them as a people because they were a a nation of slaves and they ate this meal together and they were taught, invite other people, invite Egyptians in, invite anybody who's in need in. And God showed up at their meal because they believed, not because they were perfect, And then they were set free as a nation. The next day, they were sent out a free people because the power of that meal. The kingdom breaks in in significant ways when we eat with outsiders. And Jesus, if you read the New Testament, over and over and over, he showed up at meal after meal after meal after meal after meal. And whenever he would show up, he was showing up to a place where everybody had need and then he would come in and he would meet needs in ways that just blew their, their, their minds. But it happened in those 21 times a week that people eat. And so what does this have to say to us? He's inviting us to invite outsiders to eat with us on a regular basis. Really? Yes. There's no other application you can make if you're following Jesus Remember, we're followers of Jesus. We're apprentices. We see Jesus eating with 
even really notorious people. He didn't have a home. He said, foxes have places to go, but the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head. He didn't have the comfort of a home. But everywhere he was invited, he brought his disciples, and he never said no. He went and ate with all the people who were considered outsiders. And I forget the quote. I'm not going to try to quote it. Miroslav, Miroslav, Miroslav Volf is a, a theologian who works from, out of Yale University. And he has this great book called Exclusion and Embrace. And he talks about how excluding people not only damages those people, it damages us. And he gives just example after example after example and how freedom begins to break into our lives and we begin to embrace outsiders. Because the kingdom is something we need too. But the kingdom isn't something only we get. It's something that we share with other people. That we get the kingdom and then we share it with other people and then we make it available by opening up our lives and space in our lives for people to experience the kingdom with us. Where we live, this is the thing about this disciple-making thing. It's where we live, work, learn, and play. It's just in the everyday rhythms of our lives. And so these are the objections that I hear when, and they're not, you know, insignificant objections. I'm just going to give you a few of them. I'm not good at hospitality. How many of you feel like that? Like, gosh, I'm not, I'm not Martha Stewart. Well, let me let you in on a secret. You don't have to be Martha Stewart to be hospitable. You just need to be welcoming. You just need to serve food. It doesn't even have to be Food Network level food. People appreciate a home-cooked meal. They appreciate company. The statistics say people are eating by themselves. And nobody should eat by themselves. It, 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 on occasion. You know, on occasion, I get tired of you guys, and I want to eat by myself. I get that. But we're all supposed to be hospitable. Here's another objection. I don't have time for hospitality. Well, the cool thing is, you're already eating 21 times a week, so you do have time for hospitality. The question is, do you want to show hospitality? Do you really want to follow Jesus? Do you really want to let people into your home and into your life? It begins to begins to force you to ask questions about what's really in your heart. Third, not an insignificant question, my kids are, are a handful, okay? Our kids aren't always peaceful little angels that, you know, sit at the table and they pray their table prayers. You know, they're, they're like banging things, they're pulling their brother's hair, they're, you know, having a fit. Hey, we got to die to what people think of us. We don't, nobody, everybody knows our kids aren't perfect. We've, we've already established that. The secret is out. Nobody walks into your house thinking that, you know, they're going to see perfectly obedient children in a perfectly clean house. Another thing we need to die to, that we, we, we have this impression we want to leave. Everything is, we have our lives all together. We don't. We've got to die to that. Does it really matter? Hospitality. It's about them. It's not about you. But the truth is, when our life is overbalanced in that, and in our life does, we do matter. 
But when our life is overbalanced that way, these kinds of invitations from Jesus are going to bring that to light, and it's going to be uncomfortable. Last of all, some people say, I can't afford to feed a bunch of people every week. But you can afford to eat out. You can afford premium cable. You can afford all kinds of vacations, new cars every couple of years, new clothes, bling. You're being selfish. I'm just being frank with you. You're being selfish. Jesus wasn't selfish for you. He emptied everything out for you and for me. And he says, it doesn't seem like you would be happier if you were shelling money out for other people. But what he says is, in reality, you will be much happier. Because there's only a point where you can be happy spending money on yourself. Everybody reaches a point where the more you spend on yourself, you start getting negative returns on investment. I'm just telling you, it's true. Jesus says, if you'll give, it will be given back to you. Not that you'll get more money back. You will get intangible but crucial kinds of benefits that come from investing your money in other people. Because giving is not giving away. The Bible uniformly says if you give in the name of Jesus, it is investing. And it is an investment that will give you a return that's better than any investment you can make. But it means you'll have to deny yourself certain things. And when we deny ourselves certain things, it shows us how much security we have in those things. It exposes it. And it's uncomfortable to do that. But the, the cool thing is, is when, when you embrace this idea that if I give, God's going to give me something back that I really need. And I can't get it unless I give. It is freeing. It is freeing. It's like your imagination opens up in ways that you could never have imagined. It's powerful. Now, I just want to give you a couple of minutes. I did this a couple of weeks ago. Do you have any questions? No, no anecdotes or stories. Q&A is not questions and anecdotes. It's you ask the questions, I, get, I give the anecdotes if I want to. Any questions about this, about eating with people? Practical questions, whatever. The welcome of the kingdom? You're welcome. Boy, when I was talking about partying with Jesus, there was a lot of questions. Is eating just that simple? Is it that easy? You guys get it? Is everybody doing it already? Probably not, but we'll get there. Questions? Maggie, what do you suggest when you're burnt out? Burned out in hospitality. How do you feel you're a little burned out in hospitality? Anybody? The Grinners. The Grinners are like the hospitality kings. Maggie, Tom, okay. When you get burned out on something, the Bible says you need to rest. And our culture says, don't rest, just work more. And I say rest. That, that's, that, I don't want to make that sound oversimplistic, but take a break. Take a break from it. But, but, you know, in the immortal words of Bill Murray, when he had his breakthrough, and what about Bob? I learned to take a break from my problems. It's, it, you got permission to take a break. He thought that was the greatest thing. He, you know, the doctor wrote in prescription, take a break from your problems. He went, oh, what, really, take a, I don't want this to be too cliche, but take, take a break from, from doing that for a while when you get burned out. Because you, you got God's permission because you need to rest. And rest will allow you to, to get replenished and then you can get back in the game. Anybody else? Okay, then 
Let's close with this. So this is your takeaway. Eating with others is a way of inviting people to experience the kingdom of God. At a meal. At a meal. Because Jesus shows up at meals and he meets needs. When we invite him and we make space for him. Second thing is, Jesus said, if he only came for people who knew they had a need. He said, I didn't come to call those who were healthy. I came to call those who were, I'm a physician, who were sick. And so what he's saying is, in that room, there was a group of people who felt like they were healthy, the religious leaders. And they saw these other people as the ones who were the company of sinners. And Jesus said, you want to know why I'm hanging around the people who are the sinners? Because they know they have need of what I'm bringing. You don't, so I don't associate with you. And it doesn't mean I don't love you. It, you he just, he's saying, and because he, he sends them off to think about it. He says, go away and think about this. Why does God say he just wants obedience and not sacrifice? That would lead them to place themselves, if they were wise, in the company of sinners and say, the Messiah is only coming for sinners. Everybody's a sinner. How on earth can I fancy myself a righteous person who doesn't need what the Messiah alone can bring? And that God and his kingdom breaks into our lives when we begin to embrace the idea that man or people can't live by bread alone. You can't, you can't live by just work, success, material things. They're not wrong. You do need some of those things, but they don't give you what you really need. It comes because these people, these sinners and tax collectors, they were economically in the higher levels of that society. And they were interested in what Jesus was offering. Ironically, the Pharisees were also in the upper tiers of their society because they worked hard and they were diligent. They saved and gave. And so they were financially doing well. But they weren't interested in Jesus. And Jesus said, the kingdom only comes through me and through following me. And it just means that you just need to be honest about that you've been, you've been chasing bread and it doesn't satisfy ultimately. And, and so he's just, he's laying down a, a simple axiom that if we'll just admit that we have need and follow Jesus, he will meet that need. And if we hide it, and if we hide it, we'll hide it in a thousand ways. And I, I want you to see something about these six rhythms of life is they force you into transparency. They force you to vulnerability. Because if you're going to eat with people, you're, you're not going to always be prepared the way you would for Thanksgiving or, you know, a big, big event. If you're making it a part of the rhythm of your life to invite people over to your house, you're, it's, just, it's just going to be kind of messy and gnarly and not perfect, and the food isn't always going to be perfect. But the welcome is what it's all about. But it will expose things in, in us when we invite people in to the rhythms of our life. To the everyday rhythms of where we live, work, play, and learn. We have to, we, those masks that we hold up, we won't be able to sustain them all the time. You just can't. It's, it's, just, it's just impossible. And then when we realize we don't have to, it's liberating. So this thing 
benefits us too. It doesn't just benefit the people to whom we show hospitality. It, it forces us to press into Jesus in deeper ways. And isn't that, now, you may not agree, but this is just good news to me. It's just good news. And if you are here and you're not following Jesus, we're going to take the Lord's Supper here. And this is the gospel in a picture where Jesus says, even though it's bread and wine, he's saying, this is another kind of bread. It's the bread of my life given for your life so you could have a new life. And if you follow Jesus, there's a moment where this thing called baptism happens, where you're, as you follow him, you become joined with him. And there's this, just like you take food and you eat it, your body assimilates it and you get life and strength from it. When you follow Jesus and you really surrender your life to him, there's this joining that happens and life comes in you and you go, where did that come from? How come I can do things I couldn't do before? And you're not perfect, but suddenly a, there's a capacity in you that's up beyond your capacity. And it comes simply by committing your whole life to Jesus and saying, I'm going to follow him. And some of you, you've never done that before. You've thought about it. Some of you, been, some of you here have been in church your whole life, but you've never done that. You've never really just said, I'm going to give you everything. You've always held on to things. And it doesn't work when we hold on to things. Even once you begin to follow him, you'll see you'll take things back. And Jesus will say, give them to me. It's so much better if you let me run your life. So I want to ask you to, to consider that today. Because instead of asking you to stand up and come forward and pray a prayer with me, I'm going to pray a prayer, and I want you to come forward with everybody else, because we're all, this is what the Lord's table says is, that we're saying together, and it's a radical statement to make in the world we live in. We can't live by bread alone. So we're coming to this table to feed on Jesus. We are saying we are not these cool people who have it all together, who have no needs. We are people who needed Jesus to die for us on the cross to rescue us because we made such a mess of things. It's a radical statement when you understand what you're doing when you take communion. And so maybe this is the first time when you come forward today that you're going to say, I'm really admitting that I can't live by bread alone, by all the stuff that I thought would make my life work. I repent of that, and I'm coming to follow Jesus now. And maybe you're in, you're in the throes of that, and you want to come up, and you're not, you're not, you don't have it all figured out yet. Don't worry about that. Just say, I want to follow Jesus. And the rest of us, we're, we're taking the Lord's Supper together to meet him here. Even though it's not a meal in the traditional sense, Jesus shows up at meals, especially at this meal. So wherever you're hungry right now in your life, there's a need. You can't live by bread alone in that area of your life. Bring that to the table today and say, Jesus, would you meet this need in my life? Would you be there for me in this place where I'm hurting, where I'm struggling, where I'm broken? And that he's going to meet us today. Some of you, it's a physical thing. There's healing. We've seen people, as they're taking communion, get physically healed, and no one's prayed for them. Because ultimately, Jesus is the one that heals. So why don't you stand with me, and let's pray. And if you could, just for a second, uh, I know that we're still in the, 
the plague zone. But if you could just take your right hand and put it on the shoulder, the right shoulder, or left shoulder of the person next to you. I'm sorry, from Texas. 